0: But what a pleasant uh, surprise it is to see so many people back from illness and surgery and all kinds of other things. It's nice to have you all back. It's about time. is really all I have to say. So if you are keeping score at home, uh, you know that as of this morning we're now on the fourth letter um, to the fourth of seven churches that are named in the opening section of the book of Revelation. Um, And as we have been saying all along, these letters, these seven letters, really are kind of the the heart and soul of the book. Even though, as a Christian community, we spend way too much time studying the rest of the book, we kind of overlook these first couple of chapters. Which I really find kind of amazing, that, that we tend to gloss over or just quickly read through the part of the book that is so remarkably clear and understandable. And enormously enormously applicable and instead we invest all of our time and energy in trying to crack the code. We make colorful charts. I mean if you do a Google search of charts of revelation, it is astonishing. They kind of look like Rorschach inkblot tests or some kind of weird art thing after a while. We make all these colorful charts. We're trying to crack the code that, that tells us that Jesus is coming back most likely on a Thursday and probably around supper time. And we overlook the easy parts, easier parts, which I think is just kind of typical human behavior. You know, we, if we have things clearly laid, laid out for us, here's what you ought to do, here's what you ought not to do. We're not really all that interested in that, but make something hidden, or make it seem like something we're not supposed to know, and we are all about that. We will lose sleep and skip meals trying to figure it out. So we're spending time on this accessible, understandable and enormously applicable parts of the book of Revelation, knowing that it's going to help prepare us for what we're going to read in the next round of visions. So, before we jump in, let me pray and then we'll continue. Gracious Father, we gather together today to praise your holy name, to remember your works of grace and mercy in our lives, and to thank you for your great love for us. We ask that you be with us this morning as we seek to meditate on your word, uh, as we study your precepts. Help us see the ways that we can avoid, that we can apply this, not avoid this, apply this in our lives. Give us ears to hear what you have for us this morning. Uh, Even, you know, if anybody watches the news, it's easy to be overwhelmed with uh, what seems like a a culture running towards godlessness and and rumors of wars and famine and pestilence. But it all reminds us that you are the one true sovereign God who is in control, whose plan is being fulfilled right now, even if we can't see it or understand it. So I pray that you give us your peace, uh, the peace that passes all understanding, and help us... Stay faithful. Help us hold fast to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now last week we looked at the, uh, the church in Pergamum, and we saw that that city was, was literally teeming, overflowing with occult, pagan, demonic influences. In fact, the satanic influences were so pervasive, it was referred to as Satan's throne. Pergamum was the city where Satan dwells. And in spite of that, the church in Pergamum was still recognized and, and commended for having kept the faith, for remaining steady, even in the face of persecution and at least one case of martyrdom. We talked about Antipas and whether he was beheaded or beheaded. We don't know for sure, but he was killed for the faith. But the church in Pergamum had some issues as well. There were some who held to the teachings of, of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. And we talked about Balaam, how he was an advisor to, to the king of Moab, And he advised the king not to go to battle against the Israelites, but but rather lure them, seduce them into sin. You don't have to force them to worship idols and false gods. Just tempt them with sensual pleasures of forbidden women. Allow the effects of worldliness to run their course. And we're not really told much about what happens during that time in Israel, but apparently during that time when they're being lured into false worship... None of the leaders in Israel recognized what was happening, or if they did, none of them really spoke out much about it. Um, and, And so many of the Israelites had fallen into a deep, sinful state where they were actually eating food offered to idols in the context of worship. They were participating in sexual immoralities in the context of worship of these false gods. So these people who had been set apart for God ended up living exactly like the culture around them. And the Nicolaitans in the church went beyond that even. They didn't just allow these sins to take place. They didn't just allow these behaviors among Christians. They actively taught that it was okay to do all of this. It's okay if Christians live like the world. As long as we know we're Christians, we're okay. It was an extreme form of spiritual compromise. So the the challenge to the church in Pergamum was this same Old Testament pattern of of Balaam uh, it's taking place in your church. What are you going to do about it? Your, your, your church is being lured into uh, capitulation with the culture. You're, you're acting just like the culture. Leaders, teachers, mature Christians, what are you going to do about it? Because listen, you Pergamese people, if, if you don't deal with this now, if you don't nip this in the spiritual bud, as it were, things are going to get really ugly, spiritually speaking and if we take a gander here at this chart that Al used a few weeks back here here are the the letters to the seven churches and he he laid out for us this chiastic structure um, where Ephesus and Laodicea both have danger of losing their Christian identity beginning and end second and sixth continue to persevere in the face of persecution continue to persevere and these middle three churches where we are right now all face the same issue of compromising with the pagan culture and which one's in the middle? Thyatira. So if we laid this out in a typical chiastic structure, way out here, in the way-too-excessive category, is the church in Thyatira. So I mentioned last week that there, there, there is the sense of urgency that was felt in the letter to Pergamum, and it served as a warning. Turn back before it's too late. Elders, leaders, mature Christians, deal with these problems before it's too late, because here comes Thyatira. To see what happens when you don't. Where things are not potentially ugly, spiritual speaking, they're already ugly. So here's a quick background, a quick sketch of Thyatira. It's right here. And so we're kind of following this pattern of the churches, the letters to the churches. It's located on a river. It was a prosperous trading town. It was an important location on the Roman road. Um, In fact, it was what we might refer to now as a manufacturing town or kind of a blue-collar town. The city was well-known for its large number of highly organized, well-structured trade guilds, kind of like a a union in our day. Um, In fact, it was said that Thyatira probably had more trade guilds than any other city at the time. So it was kind of like, like the Detroit of its day. And so it's likely, as we've already mentioned, that in order for you to practice your trade in Thyatira, you had to belong to a guild or a union. You had, to, you had to belong to this organizational structure. And that guild would have had their own pagan god, or gods even, rituals to those gods, and you would have had to participate in order to practice your trade. So if you didn't worship false gods, then no work for you. It was just commonplace. That's how business was done. And the most powerful guilds were the fabric dyers known for their color purple or indigo out of the area, and the coppersmiths or the bronze workers. Those were the strongest guilds. Now, you may remember the story of Paul running into Lydia. Uh, That's in Acts 16. It says that Lydia was a seller of purple. Whether that was the color or a, a purple fabric, we don't really know. But it's likely that Lydia met Paul. Lydia became an early convert. She and her family, and and probably even some employees, they went back to Thyatira, and they helped found the church. So the city was also widely known as one of the leading centers for the worship of Apollo. And Apollo was the son of Zeus, big, powerful, important god. So with all of that background, let's jump into the letter to Thyatira. Thyatira starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose, whose feet are like burnished bronze. So like all the other letters we've mentioned, this letter starts with a reminder, or a, a mention of one of the descriptors of Jesus that we saw in the very first chapter. So this says, The words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. So this descriptor is is pretty specific to Thyatira. It's it's purposeful, it's meaningful. So here in the home of the cult of Apollo, the son of Zeus, a powerful and important god, this letter starts with, yeah, but hear the words of the son of God. I think that's pretty intentional. This sets up an immediate conflict between the son of God and the son of Zeus. Who are you going to listen to? God beats Zeus every time. If they had a bumper sticker, it would have said something like, my son is better than your son because he's a real God. So you better listen to the words of the Son of God that are coming after this. Because this Son of God has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze. Now remember the biggest guilds of the day were the coppersmiths and the bronze workers. They better than anyone would have understood the refining and purifying power of Fire. So, this letter is going to be an attempt to purify and refine and correct issues within this church. And like all the other letters, this one also starts off with the positive aspects of what's happening in that particular church. Verse 19 says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So, Ephesus, you remember, got called out for lack of love, but Thyatira has love listed as a strength. And I think we can infer that this, this love is both for God and love for neighbor because they have excelled at works that demonstrate love. That's what's meant by service. That's also a strength. Along with faith and, and patient endurance, these are the good traits. These, these are the high points for the church here. These are definitely strengths in the midst of this challenging environment. But then, like the pattern in the other churches, the other shoe drops. This is the good stuff. I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Hey, church, here's the stuff you're doing that's pretty good. Whoa. I mean, one verse dedicated to the good things, three verses... Dedicated to this big problem or series of problems. And it's all kind of nicely wrapped up, it seems, in that woman Jezebel. Now, it's not just her, but it's what she represents. It's the effect that she's having on everybody else within the church. Or most everybody else in the church. Now, there are a lot of different opinions about this particular reference here. Was there actually a woman named Jezebel in that church in Thyatira? And she was doing all of these bad things. Was she an actual real person? Or was there maybe a woman who was doing all these things and had all this influence in the church? Um, and, and her behavior, her, her, her cravenness, her immorality was so bad that she mirrored, she kind of patterned the Jezebel of the Old Testament which prompts the use of the name here. It's a, it's a reference back. Now, if you remember in Pergamum, we got a reference back to the Old Testament with Balaam and uh, that whole story, and we have another Old Testament reference here in Jezebel. Jezebel is discussed in both First and Second Kings, and she's not mentioned again until here. So this clearly is to remind us of Queen Jezebel, who is married to King Ahab of the Israelites and her whole period with Ahab became one of the saddest chapters in the history of Israel Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Tyre and Sidon um, who himself was a priest to Baal Baal was the, the main god of the Canaanites in Canaanite lore he was the ruler of heaven he was the god of the sun and rain and agriculture and fertility he was often depicted holding a lightning bolt in his hand he was the big god So Jezebel herself became a devout follower of Baal. um, And perhaps because of the fertility connection, we don't really know, but Baal worship was rooted in sensuality. There were regional variations of practice and worship, but Baal worship almost always included temple prostitution. It almost always included self-inflicted injury, human sacrifice, sometimes even firstborn babies. So after marrying Ahab, Jezebel quickly convinced Ahab, the king of Israel, to worship her false god. And then she went on this national campaign to wipe out any reference to or any worship of Jehovah God. She ordered all of the altars in Israel to be, that had been erected to God to be either destroyed or converted to Baal worship. And she ordered the death of all the prophets and all the priests of God. And she got really, really close. There were one or two left standing. One of them was Elijah. One day, uh, Elijah demanded a contest between his god and the false god, Baal. You probably remember this story. So, 450 priests of Baal all gathered together around this altar and they put their their bull up on the the sacrificial altar and they began calling on Baal, calling on their little G God. Come down with fire and and burn this sacrifice. Let's show these people who the real God is. And nothing happened. And so they continued to summon their God. They continued their acts of worship and self-flagellation and whatever else was going on. They continued all this for hours and, and they got no response. And the whole time, Elijah just one guy Elijah stands back and watches and mocks and makes fun of these 450 priests he says maybe your God is napping maybe that's why he's not answering maybe you just pick the time to call on him when he's actually out relieving himself keep yelling at him you'll probably get a response sooner or later And they kept at it, and nothing happened. So eventually, then Elijah stands back, and he calls on Jehovah God. And fire came down and consumed the sacrifice of the bull on his altar. And the wood that was built around it, and the stone that everything was sitting on, the Lord wiped it all out. It was clear that the God of Israel humiliated the non-existent false god, Of Baal and Jezebel, and it just made her mad. She swore that she would continue to hunt down Elijah and kill him. There's another incident in in the king's stories of Jezebel um, and the land next to the palace. Uh, A man named Naboth owned the land next to the palace. Uh, He's described as a righteous man, and the king wanted to buy his land. But Naboth refused the offer. He wanted to keep his own property. And the king got all pouty and whiny and couldn't imagine why things weren't going his way. And so Queen Jezebel stepped in and she said, I'll take care of this problem. So she killed Naboth and all of his heirs so that legally the land would refer back to the king and the king got the property. So Jezebel was without scruples. She was a very evil, unpleasant, woman. So also, this Jezebel in Thyatira, that gives us some sense of what they're dealing with here. Whoever this woman is, she's evil and controlling and conniving and and promoting sexual immorality of all kinds. And we see here another mention of, of food being offered to idols. So the big picture is, if it's evil in this culture, she's probably doing it. And encouraging other people to do it as well. And this letter is written, To the church. This is all happening within the confines of the church. It's not good. It's just about as bad as it can be. And in spite of all that, in spite of everything that she's done, her own personal sinfulness and leading the church astray, in spite of all this, we see here, and it's easy to miss in the heart of this letter, I gave her time to repent. You see the heart of the Lord here. I gave her time to repent. In spite of her multi-layered, multi-pronged approach, creative sin adventures, all of these things she's got going on, leading all these other people astray, the Lord says, I still gave her, I gave them time to repent. Because he doesn't want any to perish. He would rather not send people to hell, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And sadly, this is a pattern we see throughout the book of Revelation also. As we go through the seals and the trumpets and the, and the bowls, we'll see over and over again how the Lord is waiting for the unbelievers, the earth dwellers, as they're called. He's waiting for them to repent. I'm giving them sufficient time. I'm sending all of these signs to let people know that I am the sovereign God. And they need to repent and follow me, and, and they refuse to repent. The word repent is used 10 times in the book of Revelation. All of the rest of, of the New Testament, it's only 14 times the emphasis in Revelation is repent. So God's first thought always is, how can we save the unbelievers from the punishment that will come? Give them time to repent. But Jezebel does not repent. He says, so I'll throw her onto a sickbed. And all those who follow her, they're all going to suffer the consequences of their unrepented sin. I'm going to throw them into great tribulation. Notice it doesn't say the great tribulation or a great tribulation, just great tribulation. So there's going to be suffering and trial and tribulation and persecution, whatever else comes their way. There are going to be consequences for their disobedience unless they repent. And then there's kind of that troubling part of it. I will strike her children dead. That sounds... Well, harsh. That seems a little harsh. But again, remember the context where they're in the home of Baal worship that often did require child sacrifice. So God's, I think, just using language that they're familiar with. But his real point is, in the context of the rest of this verse, he's not talking about actual physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. So if Jezebel is the leader here and she's leading people into sin and leading them into separation from God, then all of those who follow her are her spiritual offspring. And the consequence will be spiritual death, separation from God. Now, this seems like a pretty clear warning. But I feel like I need to address just briefly here this increasingly popular teaching in some circles regarding the spirit of Jezebel. We've all heard this probably at some point. And the big idea seems to be that there is this demonic spirit that, that is the actual spirit or closely mimics the spirit that was allegedly in Jezebel herself. And so this spirit keeps infecting church ages and in, in, in churches. Um, and so the Jezebel of old must have been demon-possessed. This Jezebel in Thyatira must have been demon-possessed. And so now this demon roams around praying on women in churches. There are books, there are sermons, there are courses dealing with this and how to exercise the spirit of Jezebel From within the church. And I don't want to get too far afield here from our main subject, but I will point out that neither in the books of the Kings or in Revelation is Jezebel herself referred to as being spirit possessed or demon possessed. There is the spirit meaning just kind of this big idea, all the things that she's involved with. Um, And I'm not saying that Jezebel, Queen Jezebel, wasn't influenced by demons. I think clearly she was. She, she had close ties with the occult. I think she was influenced heavily by demonic influence. But being influenced by is not the same as possessed by. And the same is true here, I think, in Revelation. There was a woman in this church who was charming and, and charismatic, and her personality was probably controlling and overbearing and power-hungry, and she was convincing and conniving. And she may well have been influenced by demons was able to convince someone in the church to do all of these things that they were doing idol worship and sexual sins but influenced by giving into demonic influence is not the same as possessed and controlled by because you'll notice here in this letter the issue here the church in Thyatira is called out for tolerating that woman Jezebel in her teaching their problem was they tolerated her behavior This letter doesn't chastise the church for failing to exercise her Jezebel spirit. That's not what they were guilty of. Jesus never called on this church to cast out the demon from Jezebel. In fact, what it says is she was allowed time to repent. So she had the ability and the opportunity to stop doing what she was doing. She has control over her faculties so her issue was sin not for being the host of the demon Jezebel This Thyatiran Jezebel had the opportunity and the capability to repent and she did not over and over and over So if you look at what's being described here at the church in Thyatira in many ways it seems like the logical evolution of the church in Pergamum I mean, in retrospect, it seems like Pergamon was in the early stages of what's now happening in Thyatira. Pergamum was told, if you don't deal with these false teachers now, there are going to be issues ahead. You're going to have a full-blown Jezebel crisis on your hands. That's what the church is experiencing here. The call to Pergamum was to repent, to change direction. Now, the church in Thyatira is a picture of what happens when sin is tolerated, when there is no repentance, and when people refuse to, to repent on a large scale. And I don't think it's much of a leap to say when you look at the larger spiritual climate in our own country, I have to think the state of the church more closely resembles the church in Thyatira than it does the church in Pergamum. We're moving towards a full scale Jezebel crisis. We're farther along that path than we might think. And just like Thyatira, our failure has been tolerance. We have tolerated all of these things in our churches our culture has for decades now been beating the drum of tolerance and too many churches have placed the doctrine of tolerance above this doctrine and over time we've, we've capitulated we've, we've cozied up to the culture rather than holding fast to the word and along the way it's just required, required this kind of gradual process of allowing a couple of concessions here a few minor adjustments there And that has put us on the path to tolerance. A couple of the big things. uh, First, we've kind of developed a desire to fit in with culture. We don't want to be seen as different than. We don't want to be singled out. We don't want to be called names like intolerant. And if we're called intolerant long enough, then many will eventually just kind of adjust their beliefs a little bit to get in line to go along with the tolerance crowd not unlike what happened to the Israelites in Moab and because we want to fit in and we we don't want to be labeled intolerant, the church has failed to rightly define sin this has struck me over the last year or so how many times I've heard someone say well we're all broken we are but we're broken because of sin. When we say we're broken, we're describing the symptom and not the disease. When we say broken, we're using it euphemistically so we don't have to say the word sin. Sin sounds harsh. It sounds unloving. It sounds judgmental. But broken implies, well, we're broken, we can be mended. Like Humpty Dumpty, we can be pieced back together. Often through our own efforts. So we've developed a a gospel of self-redemption or or self-healing. Which is quite a bit different than being saved from the consequences of our sin by somebody else entirely outside of us, who is himself sinless and holy. That's the only thing that can fix us. So this whole broken argument, it softens, it even denies the existence of sin. And so many churches no longer teach about sexual sin, for example. We're afraid to name it. We won't define it. So we teach a feel good, self-help, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all just a wee bit broken. Kind of pseudo-gospel that's more akin to Tony Robbins and the Apostle Paul. And Paul wrote, flee idolatry. Flee sexual immorality. Distance yourself even from those so-called believers who are actively participating in these things. Don't allow it in the church. Don't mingle with those who are acting like it's okay. And instead, we have many, many churches who tolerate everything. They're affirming everything. And a tolerant church has given up the idea of absolute truth and bought into relativism. A Barna study recently showed that 44% of born-again adults are certain that absolute moral truth exists. 44% of born-again adults believe an absolute moral truth. 9% of born-again teenagers believe in absolute objective moral truth. As so parents, what are we teaching our kids? What are we modeling for our kids? D.A. Carson wrote several years back, now tolerance means that you must not say that anybody is wrong. You have to say that all positions are equally valid. And we all know that's true. We've all seen that play out. In culture, and sadly, that's going into the pulpit as well. We're afraid to teach God's word as moral truth. Now, the issue here in Thyatira is not so much for the church to to stand for truth, or for us to stand for truth, so that we can feel some you know self satisfied smugness of knowing that we're right and they're wrong. That's not the point. The issue here is for followers of Christ being willing to call out sin in a gentle and loving way that leads to repentance. That's what we see in the text. That's the goal, to get people to repentance. That's where the church in Thyatira has failed. I mean, if we believe that there are eternal consequences for for someone we love, if there are eternal consequences for someone we love who continues to reject God's word and God's moral standards, then we ought to be compelled to share the truth of his word, to try to spare them from the consequences of their decisions. And it's not to just accept everybody and everything as okay, but just a wee bit broken. And so the outcome of all this is that we fail to stand for truth. We bought into the, well, who are you to tell me argument? Who are you to tell me what is sin? when I think our answer just needs to be well, when it comes to sin it's not me telling you it's God's word I'm just the messenger I'm just trying to help and there ought to be a distinction that we're able to make here which often I don't feel we do well enough because more often than not it seems like Christians are really really good at holding the world to a standard of righteousness to which they have not agreed While overlooking our own sin. While overlooking sin in our own camp. I mean, we're seeing this almost every day, it seems, in churches and celebrity pastors all over the world. Fall after fall, moral failure after moral failure within the church, and then we find out lots of people knew about it. That's the situation in Thyatira. They've not dealt with sin. They've tolerated it. And it's taken root, and it's become a major problem for this church. And the Lord deals with this church. He pronounces judgment, suffering of tribulations, and the pronouncement of spiritual death. And when he pronounces this judgment, he says, then all the other churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. This is serious business. It goes back to the eyes of, like, flames of fire. He's always searching and penetrating and knowing truth from falsehood and then purifying with that fire, whether to repentance or to judgment. And then he says, and this ought to concern us all just a little bit, he will give to each of us according to our works. He will give to each of us According to our works. And this is when we all say hallelujah for God's grace and mercy. There you go. Now, not even in this way too tolerant church in Thyatira, not even in this church has everyone gone along. They've not all bought into the deception. Starting in verse 24, it says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. I mean, I think this gives us just another idea of how bad things were in this church. The the idea that so much evil is being tolerated, the bad acts that have been allowed and ignored and overlooked, uh, teaching that has encouraged him. He refers to these as the deep things of Satan. This is pretty heavy, They're, they're in a pretty dark place. This is not just the occasional, well, we're all, you know, we're all sinful and we all mess up every once in a while. This is the deep things of Satan that's happening in this church. So Jesus makes it clear these deep things of Satan, this is the opposite of what we what I want for you. And so for those of you who do not hold to this teaching, to you I say, I'm not going to lay any other burden on you. Hold fast to the truth. Hold fast to objective, God revealed truth and let that guide your behaviors and your beliefs and your attitudes. Hold fast until I come. Now, let's not beat around the bush here or lapse into, you know, whatever Pollyanna Christianity we might have. Holding fast till the end is harder than it sounds. You know, we talked a couple months back, I think, about the. the the Lutheran synod in Sweden that appointed its first lesbian bishop. I mean, this is a church body that claims to hold to the words of God, but it's easy to to chart their their progression of tolerance. they, They went from wanting to be accepted by the culture and not stand out to a little government coercion along the way, failing to define sin and call it out, to welcoming and affirming sin, to elevating and encouraging and setting sin up as a model for people. Right now, there's a politician in Finland. Anybody following this? This politician in Finland who's being persecuted legally and socially for posting Bible verses that dealt with homosexuality. She wasn't attacking the gay community. She was challenging the Lutheran church who was publicly endorsing a a gay pride festival or event of some kind. She was questioning the church that claims to hold the biblical truth. How can we endorse this? And she's accused of hate speech for posting verses. She's accused of inciting violence. Which means that if she's found guilty, then isn't the Bible, on the whole, hate speech? Now, I don't think you have to be a world pla- world-class prognosticator to see how things are moving in our own country. Cancel culture is one thing, but it's a pretty short slide from, from cancel culture into actual persecution. Canada's already jailed several pastors for doing nothing more than teaching the Bible. And they happen to talk about specific verses relating to sexual immorality, homosexuality in particular. The Word of God is on trial, as are those who are trying to hold fast to it. It's not going to get easy. So I said last week I mean, most churches don't even talk about the ideas of adultery or sex outside of marriage anymore. We just don't talk about those things because it's just easier not to. And we've given up the ground of objective truth when it comes to sexual immorality. What's going to be the next issue to fall in our culture? What's the next thing we're going to refuse to talk about because it's just too uncomfortable or we might be arrested? Holding fast will not be easy. But for those who hold fast until Jesus comes, those who hold firm will be rewarded. He says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's another interesting pattern in all of these letters. The, the, the clear designation that the true church, the true believers, those who persevere till the end, they will be, they are conquerors. That word shows up in every letter. Amen. Now, as we go through these seven churches, and then we get into the rest of Revelation, that whole idea of conqueror becomes much more significant. We have some idea of what it is we're conquering as we go forward. But he says, The one who conquers, the, one who, the ones who keep my word until the end, not the words of Satan, not the followers of Jezebel, but the ones who keep my words, I will give authority over the nations. This really struck me. Think about the juxtaposition of this. For those who remain faithful to Christ, in spite of persecution and, and, and tribulation from the world system, for you, true believers who remain faithful, I will give you authority over the nations. So think about kind of how we're structured right now. And we're told that the world is being controlled by Satan and his demons, right? Below them, but a close second, nations and governments. And then unbelievers, because that's kind of the majority of the world, who are constantly and increasingly persecuting you as a believer. And then, you know, nobody cares about God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit anymore. They're the kind of the lowest on the rung of importance. This is the world we live in. This is what we have to look forward to. Look how those have been completely... We're going to go from almost lowest on the totem pole to ruling in authority, ruling with authority, authority over the nations. The idea is that the very people who seem powerful now, starting with Satan, who's got this God-defined, God-limited power, nations and governments the ones exercising some measure of authority over you, persecuting you, perhaps even killing you in the name of Christ, these people who think they have ultimate power over you will in fact be ruled by you in the end because of your right belief in Jesus. This is another one of the great paradoxes of the faith. Right? Last shall be first, and the first shall be last. That's how it's going to end. Christ is going to share his authority with us reinforcing for us again the idea that we are heirs with Christ. We're adopted into the family with all the rights and privileges that, that go along with that. And Christ is going to rule over the nations, the, the ones who taught and encouraged the deep things of Satan. Christ is going to rule over them with a rod of iron. And then it gets even a little more dramatic than that. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. And this is the picture of coming destruction for unbelievers. And what Revelation refers to as earth dwellers several times throughout. The, the whole world, the whole earth is going to be judged for our works as we saw in verse 22. And the unbelievers will be broken and destroyed. But the believers are going to be reward, rewarded with power and, and position and royal authority merely for having accepted Christ as Savior. For repenting of our sin. For holding fast to his words, even when it's not easy, especially when it's not easy, and committing our lives to follow in his footsteps. So, you think about this all we have to do is commit our lives to Christ. He's given us royal authority. It just seems to me that Jesus gets the worst part of this deal. We get all of this great stuff for eternity, and he just gets us. but that's what he wanted all along. So we rejoice. We worship the God who's created us, who's forgiven us, who's patient with us, who gives us time to repent, who saves us from becoming these broken pots. That's a broken that can't be be mended. Christ shares all of this with us freely because it was a gift to him from his father. So he shares it with us. And this last little thing I found kind of interesting. It says, we'll also be, we'll receive the gift of the morning star. Now, this is a reference to, it's, a, it's another name for Jesus. It shows up again in, in Revel, Revelation twenty two sixteen. Morning star. And, and perhaps you're thinking at this point, it seems like I've run across that phrase before. Could it be back in Isaiah 14? Yes, that's the one you're thinking of, where Satan is referred to as the morning star. The one who has fallen from heaven and who was cast down to earth. I mean, that clearly describes the fall of Satan. But here in Revelation, Morning Star refers to Jesus. I mean, it's just talked about everything he's received from his father. Clearly, this is about Jesus. So, why are both Jesus and Satan referred to as Morning Star? But I think it gets a little stranger than that, even. Because Jesus is often referred to as the Lion of Judah, and Satan roams about as a lion. So what gives? Why the similarities in description? Well, I can't say I know for sure. But here's my conjecture. Here's my thinking behind it. If you still have your handout that you were given a couple of weeks back, you'll see or you'll, you'll remember that, that as we go through the rest of the book of Revelation, we're going to deal with this idea of a holy trinity, but we're also going to deal with the idea of an unholy trinity. Right. So the similarities in description remind us that Satan will attempt to deceive us and trick us and lure us away from truth at every possibility. He provides what's going to be for many like a, a cheap Jesus knockoff. You can have your spirituality without having really to do anything for it. We know that in 2 Corinthians 11, it says Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. So we have to always be on our guard for deception. We have to always be on the lookout for temptation. We have to be aware that false teachers are trying to deceive us away from truth. Satan is going to present himself as Messiah, as Christ. Christ. He's really the Antichrist, but he's going to try to present himself as a Christ like figure. So they're given these similar descriptions to remind us that we have to be on guard for the fake. And I think we can make the argument that historically, when there is no active persecution against the church, no physical persecution, when when there's none of that going on, that's when we are, as the church, are most susceptible to temptation and false teaching. Persecution has a way of galvanizing and strengthening and bringing people together. But that's not what our country has faced for most of its existence. And we become more susceptible to temptation and false teaching and false messiahs. False Christs. When we're not actively fighting against external pressures from the culture somehow we more easily adapt and become like the culture. And I would argue this has been the case for most of this church age. But even when the larger church seems to be moving away from objective truth, moving away from the principles and the precepts of Scripture, there has always been a remnant that holds fast to the truth. Even when Israel's rebellion was at its worst... There were some who did not give in to the whims of the age. They didn't follow the the charismatic false teachers. They didn't worship the idols. There are some then and in every church age since then who have come through as conquerors. And they've been asked to do nothing more, not to take on any other burden than maintain their obedience to Christ. That's what we're called to do. We're called to be conquerors. The incitement, the encouragement is to finish this life as conquerors. Whether that's death by old age or death by being cooked in a bowl, finish this life as conquerors. And then it ends with He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit says to the churches. What the Spirit says to this church. Hold fast. Call out sin, but in a way that leads to repentance and not judgment. And look for your own sin first. So let's pray that if Jesus comes back, whether it's a thousand years from now or Thursday about supper time, that we may be found among the faithful, that we will be named conquerors to the end, which means conquerors forever after that. This is encouraging stuff. Let's pray, Lord. We are grateful for the time that we have to spend together in Your Word this morning, and, and um, I pray that for each of us, there's there's something here that's kind of kind of taken hold, uh, something that we can hang on to in the, the days and week to come, weeks to come. Uh, and Lord, I, I admit that I, I was. Uh, really overcome by the idea of this continued call to repentance. In the in the worst, one of the worst cultures, one of the worst uh, churches in one of the worst cultures, there's still your heart and your love for people and the call to repentance. So Lord, I pray that we take that personally, that we continue to search out our own hearts and lives and see where we need to, to repent. Lord, that we have a renewed commitment for objective truth, for moral truth that is based on your word and not how we feel about it today. And I pray if there are those in our, in our own lives, and we all have people in our lives who are, are living in ways that are not pleasing to you, Lord, I pray that we gently, kindly, lovingly point them towards truth. That they are given every chance to repent. We know, we know you want that none should perish. So I pray that you give, give us wisdom in knowing how to deal with those people in our, our families, and our, our work environments, and our neighborhoods, whatever it is, Lord, that we continue to be good ambassadors for your love and your grace and your mercy. And we thank you again for this time to to spend time in your word and realize again how deep and profound it is. In Jesus' name, amen.